Welcome to the first episode of Demol Belgi Argentina Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Armstrong, and joining me as always is a Canadian who is so hard to describe because of how white he is, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mr. Saunders. And this is a bit of a treat for everyone because we did decide during episode 300 where we talked about the two best seasons that we'd never covered, being Demol Belgi Argentina and South Africa. And we kind of decided then that given how much of a break we've got now, why not cover them? So we're going to start with Argentina now. We're going to do this for the next seven or eight weeks-ish, depending on whether we combine the finale and the reunion or not. Um, and then we'll have a little gap, probably for Fiesta Mall, and then we will come back with South Africa at the back end of the year. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't there like a season back back in 2002 or three that we haven't covered yet either? Yeah, that's not subtitled though, Saunders, so we are not going anywhere near that. It's, uh, it's Papa Bear or Bust for us. That's canon. Yeah, the Mikhail years do not exist in our minds. And that's how it's going to be. Booerns. Yeah, sorry about that. Unless someone wants to subtitle the uh, the remaining three seasons, then we might actually go into them blind and do those recaps. But for now, it's just going to be Argentina and South Africa. So yeah, over the next few months, you'll see the Argentina episodes pop up. Then it'll be Vidum. And then we will do South Africa. And it is fair to say that we adore these two seasons so much. There's a weird sentimental value to it, I think, for both of us, I would say. Hmm. I would say, before we even get into the episode proper, that the opening five minutes of this episode in particular are some of the greatest opening minutes of any episode ever on TV. They are so good. Just the pan up as they go down the reservoir and spot the bridge, and it just reintroduces the show so beautifully to Belgium. It's so wonderfully done. Yeah, you see everyone hanging off the bridge and, like, there's nine people very much with it. And T-Boat, who is passed out while they're filming this scene. What a lovely image. (laughs) Like, I know when we cover the live seasons of this show, we tend to have a few targets that we go for. One of which is Bertrand, who we will get to when we do South Africa. I cannot wait for that episode where all hell breaks loose with him. Another one is Ruth, who I would argue is one of the most tragic figures in reality TV history. And it's worth re-watching this episode, knowing what's going to happen to her, but also seeing that the clues are there. Because they do not make it subtle in this episode what is going to happen to Ruth. You just watch it just going, oh, this is really unfortunate for Ruth. And it's something I've realised in the first few episodes of re-watching this at least is I've forgotten so much of this season that it's really fun to go back and watch it and go, I don't even remember that happening. I miss the days of being like a a young kid watching reality TV, like when the first season of Survivor debuted. uh, I was eight years old at the time. So I have a lot easier time remembering everything that happened in, say, the first 10 years or so uh, rally TV between Survivor, Amazing Race, the American version of the mole. And then I don't know what it is with my brain, but I only watched the mole Belgi or the mole Belgi Argentina season just a couple of years ago. And there's these details I'm thinking if I was watching the season when I was 10, 11, or 12 years old, these, those details would be like ingrained into my mind. So, some ground rules to begin with. We're obviously watching this again in 2020. I originally watched this season sort of early 2017, I think. I think it was right before I watched South Africa. Uh, we, I think we worked out that you watched this season late 2017. After enough pleading that the show was amazing. You say pleading, I say nagging. <laughs> Plaguing? Yeah, I badgered you quite a lot to watch this season with me because it's amazing, and then also South Africa, and eventually you relented, watched both, and then we started covering it with the Mexico season. Because I wasn't wrong, this show is amazing. Ever since we started covering it, heading into the Mexico season, we haven't we haven't been let down at all between the three seasons that we've covered. No, and watching the first episode of this season, you begin to realise quite quickly how how on it this production crew were from minute one. So I'll begin with a few sort of ground rules, because obviously this isn't a normal season for us. We have both seen every episode of this season, we've both seen every episode of South Africa. So the only difference between this and our regular recaps is that we're not going to do any predicting. There'll be no predicting, no suspicions, no nothing. 
I probably will joke about it quite a lot, because that's me, but there will be none of the guessing. And I'm going to try and keep my notes and stuff reasonably spoiler-free. Obviously, I'll point out stuff that the mold is doing, but I'll also point out suspicious stuff that everyone else is doing, purely for anyone who hasn't actually seen the entirety of this season. That's going to be tough. <laughs> I know, but at least as long as I point out all the sabotages, we can sneak in the actual ones that the mole did. Because, looking back on it, there's not actually a lot of these sabotages I can remember, which is fun. And that's uh, that's the fun part, too, is I, I can't remember everything we were shown in the reunion show, so I'm going based off of what we see in the edit, so that'll be the fun part, to just assume what the mole, what we think the mole sabotaged as we rewatch this, and then get through the reunion, and I think it'll make us appreciate what the mole does each season in terms of how to manipulate the group and keep the money out of the pot. Yeah, there's only one sabotage I can definitely remember. All from these first two episodes? No, luckily. It's uh, from sort of partway through the season. There's only one task where I can remember exactly how the mole sabotaged it because of how cool it was. Hmm. It's like there should be a segment at, at the end of each episode where we talk about what we think the mole did, have it be the most... most uh, spoiler-laden part of the each each recording. We can do that if you want to. I didn't have it in my mind to do it, but yeah, you can do it if you want to. Just thinking how tough it's going to be to avoid talking about them all. <laughs> in a podcast called The Mall. <laughs> right, we'll do that then. So at the end of the episode, there will be a little spoiler warning, assuming we remember to do it, uh, and we will try and discuss what we think the person who is the mole uh, did during this episode and I'm deliberately not gendering the mole so that it doesn't narrow the list down at all for anyone who's not seen the season. So we begin as I mentioned with a goosebump inducing scene where they pan down the reservoir introducing the show back to Belgium. Ten strangers traveling around doing challenges in an unknown destination working together but one is a saboteur is the mole. And I'll begin by saying this I know it's only been five years but Papa Bear looks young. I guess producing a season of The Mole each year just has its wear and tear on him. It's a tough job. It's a fun job, but a tough one. And as we mentioned, our sort of introduction to them is them all hanging off a bridge blindfolded. And then they are all properly introduced to us, with the producers asking whether they want to be The Mole. And how would you handle this question if you are on the first season of a reboot of The Mole? Would you ever say no to the question, do you want to be The Mole? I want to be the mole. I think I would put no. Really? I know you would. I 100% would say yes. I can't remember who it is who says it, but someone in their introduction says, of course I want to be the mole. They have the most fun. The thing is, I, if, if, I haven't, if I was a contestant who hadn't seen the mole in 16 years, I'd be, I'd be nervous because I, I would be the one setting the template for how to try and do things as opposed to having past moles in my country to study up on. The thing is, I feel like if you go into a season like this, knowing you're going to be the mole, there are so many more resources now than there were when the previous three seasons aired. Because just off the top of my head, we've had more Australian ones, we've had more American ones. There's Vidum, you'd binge the shit out of Vidum. There's been the UK ones in 2001, which we won't talk about because you got them cancelled. There's so much more of a fan community now that I don't think there is an excuse for going into a season like this as an unprepared mole, unless you are picked on location. Yeah, it'd be, be funny how Elizabeth gets picked as mole. Um, can I, just by chance, do any of you guys happen to have several torrented copies of the past four seasons? <laughs> well, that's the thing. There is no need for torrents when... There's such a wonderful fan community of people. I mean, just straight away in terms of Vidum, we have Marika, who's been doing so much good work of subtitling over the past few years. Before her, there was that Dark Spark who did another three seasons of subtitling, I think it was. And like, if you look, not even in the shady bits of the internet now, if you look, you can find pretty much every mole season that has aired anywhere in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um... It was funny. Did I tell you what it was like to be a mole fan back between like 2000 to 2001 to 2005? How we would follow on the international seasons of the mole? Uh, I don't think this has ever come up. And I've also just realized that we didn't actually introduce ourselves properly to everyone else, which is fun 10 minutes into this episode. 
So anyways, back in the early, way back in the early days, there used to be a site called GeoCities, which was owned by Yahoo. Everyone had their own, yeah, lots of people had their own GeoCities webpage. GeoCities shut down, this is to put it in context how, how ancient the internet is, GeoCities shut down in 2009. <laughs> and the peak of everyone having their GeoCities page was probably in... 2001, 2002, 2003 with GeoCities or Angelfire, I think was another one. And there was this GeoCities page of a diehard mole fan. And the only way to really follow what all the other countries were doing with the mole, like all the different countries in Europe and with Australia and so some of the more obscure ones, is there was this guy, I don't know how he did it, but... He would uh, do like written transcripts of what was of the other uh, mole seasons. Sometimes, if he couldn't understand what was going on or didn't really know, or if it was from other fans too in the community, there would just be like really brief, like two paragraph summaries of the episode. And then the, at the end, they would have like thumbnails for the remaining contestants. And then you click each thumbnail, and on the other side was a green screen or a red screen. And this was the only way to find out what was going on with the mole in the other countries, considering back then it wasn't really an option to be able to access full 40-minute episodes online of the other mole seasons. And that guy was David Bindley. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no. It wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> but it would have been a great turn up for the books for you, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> So to steal a theme off of the Greek season that I had this year, uh, let's go back to the start. So my name is Michael, live in the UK, been a mole fan forever. Uh, started watching the UK one in 2001, kind of forgot it ever existed until I became a friend of Bother's Bar, and um, at that point that dark spark had started um, subtitling the Dutch seasons that were happening at that point. Fell in love with them again, then when Belgium came back fell in love with that and been watching ever since, and been obsessed ever since. Um, I have an absolutely terrible record when it comes to the mole, I'm guessing who it is, especially with Belgium. With this season, I was wrong. With South Africa, I was wrong. With Mexico, I was right eventually. With Vietnam, I was wrong, and it was super awkward because we went to the finale last year, and Logan actually um, actually dropped me in it with my mole suspects when I was wrong. Um, but... I don't care, because this show is the best show on TV anywhere, and I have said that on TV on numerous occasions. Cool story. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, same thing. Mole fan, pretty much forever. I don't know how I came across the first episode, the first season of the American one on cable. That was a very long time ago, back when Anderson Cooper was a reality TV host and not a successful and respected journalist. And I started playing online versions of the mole when I was 11 years old. That was my introduction to playing online games of mole, Survivor, and Big Brother. And I've hosted my own versions of the mole at my house over the years and played on other online games of it. And yeah, after the final rebooted American season, I think I watched a few of the Australian ones. I think the first four Australian seasons I saw back right before I graduated high school in uh, 2009. And then, yeah, there wasn't really any mole seasons to watch for years and years. And then I got brought back into it in uh, 2017 with watching the mole Belgium Argentina and Vidim, Vidim Japan to be specific. And Michael and I have kept up with both versions ever since. And we're crossing our fingers one day that American or the Canadian version will somehow appear in the next couple years. <laughs> or the UK. Or the UK. I desperately want them to bring back the UK mole. And spoilers, if they do, I will be applying for it. Because they've had 19 years to kind of look at all the international versions and realize what went really well and what didn't. So it should be amazing. And I should note, we always bring the story up every once in a while, but in that, the first episode of the second British season filmed a couple tasks about, well, one task was filmed 
45, a 45 minute walk away from my house. Yep. So Logan in summary got the UK mole cancelled because there hasn't been a season since. Yeah, it made our newspaper. And I can't remember whether we've discussed this before, but the host of the UK mole ended up uh, becoming the banker on our version of Deal or No Deal. This is such a weird... The reality TV universe is so weird with unusual crossovers because people are kind of celebrities but not celebrities at the same time, so they find these odd roles to put themselves in uh, over the course of time. Hmm. So each of them is asked whether they want to be the mole. Kathy says yes. Thibaut says he'll be more out of his comfort zone if he's not. Stein says why shouldn't they choose a young mole, which is deeply appropriate given what's just happened in Greece. Manuela would be the funniest mole in history, and Isabel would like to. Hannah said she could maybe do it, but wouldn't want to. Mark said it would be best to be the mole. Ruth hasn't done much lying. Bruno would rather play the game. And Jill says the experience is more unforgettable if you're the mole. So, day one properly begins on the Salinas Grandes in Argentina. They boarded a plane in November 2015, not knowing where they were going, or for how long. And Papa Bear meets them all individually on Salinas Grandes in northern Argentina. And Isabel is the first one up. She's a 29-year-old liar. He tells her to leave her phone, her passport, and her wallet, and enter the car down the way, and to have fun. And she doesn't know what to expect, apart from some fun and scary experiences. And on another note, Jill suddenly managed to order a bunch of stuff through Amazon through somebody's credit card. It was all in the basket. All the ID right there. Yep, he'd been waiting months to get that uh, West Wing DVD collection for the downtime in the hotels, and he basically just said, I don't care who appears first, as long as they have Amazon Prime, so I can order it. Yeah, just put it in the basket, guys. Just put it in the basket, it'll be all taken care of. I hear the first question on the application process is, how much money do you make per year? <laughs> yeah, how high is the credit limit on your uh, on your credit card, and how much money would you plausibly not mind going missing? <laughs> and do you have interest? <laughs> so, Bruno is the second person up, and he's a 45-year-old contractor, and he's a little bit nervous. And then Mark joins Isabel's car, and Hannah joins Bruno's. Mark is a 49-year-old bus driver, and Hannah is a 25-year-old party planner, who doesn't know who Papa Bear Gilles de Costa is. Not even from Dislimps to Mens. Did, did all... I, she wasn't the only one who didn't know who he was, right? She was the only one that we saw say in the episode that she didn't know who he was, I think. Everyone else was kind of like, he won the smartest person in Belgium last year. You should know who he is. Yeah, but that's on cable. Who watches cable anymore? Certainly not Hannah. <laughs> well, she's a children's she's a children's party planner. Do you think that's going to be a theme for a party that she plans? Hey, let's watch adults be really smart. <laughs> that's entertaining. No Paw Patrol for you, you little shits. <laughs> <laughs> I just have such <laughs> images of Hannah getting really annoyed at the children at a party going, I've planned this wonderful party for you, and you're being ungrateful. Just get up, you little shits, and do your puzzles. How can you not solve this Tower of Hanoi, Billy? <laughs> just all these little tasks to prove who's the smartest toddler at this two-year-old's birthday party. What's What's funny, though, with Hannah being a child... Uh, children's party planner is that uh, a question that kindergartners will get that they're able to solve is to figure out uh, which direction a bus is driving in the picture because they know to think of the of where the door would be so it's kind of funny that the children's party planner in episode two can't figure out a riddle for like kindergartners and first graders (laughs) apparently she didn't learn enough from from her own clients and Thibaut is the next person up. He's a 48-year-old manager and joins Hannah in Bruno's car. Gilles joins Mark and Izza. He's a 27-year-old brand manager and apparently looks like Papa Bear's brother. Who does? Uh, Gilles does. That's what they uh, they said when he got in the car. Oh! What parents na- ha- named their two kids the exact same name? Yeah, you're Gilles 1 and you're Gilles 2. If I just want to nag, I'll just call both of you at once and you'll both have to come into the living room. And then we get the introduction to the star of the episode, Ruth, because she stumbles her way out of the first car, keeps dropping her water bottle, 
and then just kind of stumbles her way over to her actual car. And she's a 46-year-old sales administrator and joins Hannah, Thibault and Bruno. And Kathy is of eighth. She is a 37-year-old housewife. And she says she has a maid because she doesn't do chores. And Manuela is the ninth person up. She's a 52-year-old seamstress and joins Hannah, Bruno, Ruth and Thibault. And the final person up is Stein, a 25-year-old engineer, and he is in the Kathy, Jill, Mark, and Isabel car. And Ruth says that they won't stay there, because what else can you do but dig? And she's about two years too early for that one. Yeah, she missed out on the set on being buried alive. <laughs> Seriously, though, Ruth doing the opening task to the Mexico season would have been amazing. Because I know we're only going to get about one or two episodes of Ruth jokes here, but Ruth is such a tragic figure and she's terrible at everything we see her do it's delightful if anyone's gonna be the first first boot from a reboot of them all it's gonna be ruth (laughs) yeah even if you go into this episode not knowing that ruth is going to be your first boot you'd pretty much guess on paper she's going to be an early one if nothing else (laughs) she'll need a lot of past fragments and a lot of exemptions Yeah, she's wonderfully pig-headed by the time of the execution because she pretty much aims at one person straight away. But also, she's terrible at manual dexterity. Manuela dexterity? (sighs) Yes, Manuela dexterity. So the two cars begin driving and the teams see each other for the first time. Ten candidates, one is the winner and one is the mole. And during the chip, they have to work together to earn lots of money. If they complete everything, they can earn over €100,000 for the pots but someone is sabotaging and wants to keep the pots as low as possible. Oh, that's why they're there? Yeah. Yeah, they're not there for Papa Bear, Gilles de Costa's fun time holiday. I thought Hannah organised that party. <laughs> no, she organises the reunion. That's what you're thinking of. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, she arranges the reunion to have, like, face painting and pin the tail <laughs> on the donkey. And... Clowns. <laughs> All the classics, basically, like um, balloon animals and math balloon moles. <laughs> yeah, maths problems as well. Don't forget them. Yeah. Does everyone have their Tower of Hanoi? So, on the screens in the cars, uh, Papa Bear appears and welcomes them to the Salinas Grandes. Each car will drive to one end of a five kilometer line. All they've got to do is plant a flag in the exact middle to earn money for the pots. The division isn't exactly coincidental. Everyone in Isabel's car said yes when they were asked if they would like to be the mole, and everyone in Bruno's said no. They can win up to €10,000 if they come within 10 metres of the middle of the line, but to earn any money, they have to complete mini-challenges along the way to get to that zone. And as mole, would you want to be in the yes group or the no group? Because there's no guarantee which group the mole is in. I think... To be more suspicious, you'd probably want to be in the yes group. I think so too, but these first two episodes really play with the perception of where you expect a mole to be, I would say. Because this first challenge is one where you'd expect the mole to be in the yes group, but can they do more sabotaging in the no group? And the second episode opens with the potential execution game, where the mole really has to make a choice whether they want to keep 10 people in the group to protect against their identity being found out quicker, or keeping 5,000 euros out of the pot. So it's really odd for the mole for these first couple of episodes, I would say, at least in terms of the starting challenges of those episodes. One sneaky thing that production did too, I know we're skipping ahead a bit to the second episode where they, or no, here in the first episode where they made everyone... uh, made everyone uh, rank who they thought was most suspicious to least suspicious. Yeah, because when it's been done in other versions, it's been, like, mid-season, like in the US ones. Yes. Well, they also did it in the very... Well, not a ranking, but they did it as the first task of the of the last season that they did. What they made were, like, Mar- who do you think is the mole? Marcy. Okay, Marcy's in charge. Oh, and yeah, she's gone first. <laughs> Great job, guys. You missed. You already lost your first suspect. <laughs> that is why, if you're Ruth, you do not go straight ticket on one suspect on the very first quiz. <laughs> do you think Ruth was the only one who succeeded with making herself cry because she realized what she was getting herself into? Oh, 100%. I think as soon as she set foot or stumbled onto the Selena's Grandis, she realized how in over her head she was. And, I mean, just look at her first, basically, confessional where she said, 
oh yeah, Papa Bear's not going to keep us here for a challenge. He's going to take us somewhere nice. He just wanted to meet us at a scenic place in the first place. And it's just like, now you've never seen this show before, have you, Ruth? He's 100% going to leave you here. And, or she just had the premonition of the paint bomb and that brought a tear to her face as well. <laughs> oh, we will get there. I think we might have a few things to say about the, um, the paint bomb challenge next week. So, at each end of the line, uh, each group gets some tools to help, including a water pistol, a rope, and a tyre. And both groups quite logically decide to use the rope, which is 21 metres long, not that they know that originally. And they have to work it out using things that they have otherwise. So, Gilles works out that the tape is exactly twice as long as the rope, so they can use that to measure the distance in a shorter amount of times at least. And both groups come across the first sign. They can earn 500 euros each by picking two people who can solve a puzzle under pressure. To earn the money, they must use only a straw to transfer liquid from a bottle which is glued to the table in a glass, and they've got five minutes to transfer it to earn the 500 euros. If they fail, both people who played in each team will be left behind. And for the yes group, it's Kathy and Stein who play, and for the no group, it's Hannah and Bruno. I think with this first challenge, it is really easy if you're the mole because... Everyone's so disoriented trying to figure out this game after such a long period of time. And everyone's probably so wound up that they're not going to be performing at the best of their ability when they do these little mini-games. Yeah, because if you think about it, we have no idea how long they actually spent in Sequester before the game. It could have been two hours, it could have been 12 hours, it could have been three days or a week. And if they were trapped in a hotel room, if it's anything like the other shows we cover... There was probably no TV in there, no clocks. All they could do was just pace and pace and pace. And then as soon as they're released from that and sent straight to the Salinas Grandes into a challenge, there's that rush of adrenaline, which means that they're not thinking straight. So let's be honest, they probably were never going to win this challenge. I mean, there's just too many things that you really have to stop to think about in order to put any money into the pot. Yeah, you have to bear in mind that for €10,000 to be lost in this challenge, all it takes is for the mole to do one thing, and that is move their team's flag by 20 metres or more. Anything more than that, and they're golden. But they just have to make sure that their team's flag is accepted, and that it is at least 10 metres away from the correct point. And no matter what else happens, they lose the €10,000 in this challenge. Yeah, and and also mess up whatever minigame they participate in. Well... Not even that. As long as the flag is placed in the wrong place, it doesn't matter what they do in the minigame. They could be a really cocky mole and win it if they wanted to and get, right. say, four, five thousand euros into the potential pot and then lose it all because the flag's wrong anyway. Yeah, you could do that where, yeah, you succeed at the minigame and then, yeah, make sure the flag is nowhere near where it's supposed to be and hope that you have enough control within the chaos to ensure the money is lost. Yeah, because this is a great challenge for the mole to potentially reduce the suspicion on them by winning their minigame and then still ensuring that the flag's wrong so they don't get up to 10,000 euros into the pot. It's a win-win situation for them. I guess the risk is, if you if everyone is getting close to where the middle is going to be, maybe a bit too risky to be like, oh shit, we're about to win a ton of money. I need to make a stand to get this flag further away. Um, that might be sticking your neck out way too much for the first task of the game. But what I'll say on that is that there were two flags. So if the mole knows that everyone's getting a little bit too close and that, let's be honest, they're the only person who knows the flare's going to go up in the middle line anyway, if they're getting a bit too close, the mole can just kind of push for the other team's flag as long as they're not within 10 metres of the midpoint anyway. So they were never going to win. Yeah, the two flags were 80 metres apart? Yeah, the two flags were very far apart in the end. Right. So yeah, both teams use the basic air pressure method of trying to use the straw to kind of transfer the liquid very slowly, and towards the end, Papa Bear actually shows us how it's done, which is to create a seal with your hand over the top of the bottle, so the only exit for the liquid is the uh, the straw itself. Both teams fail, and um, Hannah realises how to do it right after the uh, timer runs out. Which is, uh, which is a habit of hers each episode. Yeah. <laughs> She always figures it out as soon as as soon as it's done. Yeah, this won't be the last time you hear us say the words, and Hannah figured it out after the time has run out. <laughs> so at the second sign, the remaining six must choose one person in each group who's in perfect control of their body. And Ruth says she's in control of her body, just not everything around it. 
and Jill is volunteered for the Yes Team. And at this station, they've got five minutes to make a singles here roll down their cheek. If they succeed, they will earn 1,500 euros each. So Jill's tactic to make himself cry is to rub salt in his eyes, and Mark says that he will succeed because he's a softie. And I had forgotten, since watching these episodes, how awful Mark is at times. Mark is genuinely not the sort of casting that you ever see again after this season, because he's really sort of unfortunately homophobic in this episode especially. He, I don't think he... I think Giles might be the first gay person he has ever met in his life. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just a side effect of him pacing around the room for three days, potentially, but especially in this episode, he says some things where you go, oh, I don't think you wanted to say that on TV, really. I would I would use a sleeping bag. Don't worry, Jill, it has nothing to do with you. It didn't matter if it was any of the other people. But but Kathy, I wouldn't use a sleeping bag if it was if if uh, if you were there. <laughs> Maybe what he meant by softy was just with the hair on top of Jill's head, because Mark is very hard headed since he's completely bald. Maybe that's what he meant by Jill's being a softy. Maybe Mark only has bald friends. Was he the one that touched Hannah at the pool right after the first task? Where it's like, that is not her hip, Mark. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was him. I was surprised they actually included that in the episode. Actually, out of interest, can you remember who from this season was at the finale in Vietnam? It was tough because like, I don't remember all the early... Um, don't remember a lot of the faces from the Argentina season quite as much, since it was a bit longer. But uh, Hannah was definitely there. Um, there's Jill's. T-Bode was there. I think Isabel was there. Yes, I think so. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Bruno was there too, wasn't he? Yeah, because I remember walking into that upstairs room and sort of whispering to you going, oh my god, it's that person from uh, this season. Oh my god, it's such and such. And then just kind of trying to keep it cool as we walk through the uh, the crowd. Yeah, just tuck away in the corner. <laughs> it's T-Bode. Oh my god, it's T-Bode. He passed out on a bridge. <laughs> That's the guy who passed out on a bridge in Argentina. Oh my god. Need his autograph. <laughs> so, Jill asks for silence, and Mark doesn't seem to know what silence actually is. And Ruth somehow manages to cry in command and gets her team the 1500 euros. Jill still has 30 seconds left, but ends up having to stay behind anyway, leaving only the dream team of Mark and Isabel left. And for the final challenge, they have to choose someone who trusts blindly, and someone who is trustworthy. And Mark drops the first hot vodomer of the season. <sighs> And each side can earn up to 3,000 euros. All they have to do is reach 70 kilometers an hour in the space of 500 meters in a car. And the driver has to be blindfolded. If they fail, both must stay behind. And it's Thibaut and Manuela playing for the no team. And both teams have very different tactics. Manuela just loves shouting the number 12. And Mark ends up getting the 70 kilometers an hour and nearly takes the life of a cameraman, which I had forgotten since watching this season. <laughs> yeah, he was so close to... Yeah, in the space of five minutes, we go from unintentional homophobia from Mark to potential murder on the Salinas Grandes. I think it's called manslaughter. Can you imagine if there was a fatality on the in the first day of filming of the reboot? I think they would just cancel right there and be like, you know what? This, sh this show was gone for 16 years, it can stay there. <laughs> yeah, this definitely would have got it cancelled if the cameraman had died. I think this is this is a, a looking for a saboteur. This isn't a murder mystery. That's a different show. That's called Who Done It. Yeah, I was going to say that in any normal podcast, we'd probably do a lot of Who Done It impressions here, but we're running a little bit short on time, so we better not. So Manuela and Thibaut also succeed, banking a potential six thousand euros for the pots. And then Mark and Isabel realise that two thousand five hundred meters is not easily divisible by their rope length. Both teams plant their flags, and they are seventy meters apart. And Papa Bear appears out of nowhere and tells them to pick a flag. They flip a coin and pick the flag of the no group. If that flag is within 10 metres of the midpoint, they earn 7,500 euros. And Papa Bear sets off a firework at the midpoint, and it's really far back. And the yes group are actually 51 metres ahead of it as well. So they earn no euros of a possible 10,000 for the pots. And then we get to another bit that I'd completely forgotten ever existed, because Ruth says that she cried for nothing and then sprays Papa Bear with a water pistol, and I had no recollection of this happening. I don't remember the water pistol either. <laughs> where did she get it? Where did, the, where did the water pistol even come from? 
Well, the water pistol came from the starter pack at the start of this challenge, because Mark was playing with it and saying it had an 11 meter range. But seriously, given it features probably the most tragic first boot in reality TV history and our favourite host in reality TV history, how did I not remember this interaction ever happened? Just soaking Papa Bear? Yeah, I think this first challenge may actually set up the vibe of the show a lot more than we realised, because we always hold up Demol Belgi as kind of a bastion of brilliant production decisions and how it feels like it's a, a holiday and we're just kind of watching it as an audience, and then the sabotage itself is kind of a secondary effect of the show. But I can't imagine another show taking the time to show these sort of scenes, especially in its premiere episode, and I know it's kind of, there's a reboot and all that sort of stuff, so people should be reasonably familiar with it, but it shows a lot of faith in the production that they even showed this water pistol scene. shows you just how easy uh, Papa Bear gets along with, I mean... He told he told us this too, is that he likes picking people that he wants to spend time with for three weeks. Yeah, I genuinely think that that's the first criteria of any casting decision that they make, is that Papa Bear sits down and goes, I've got to spend three weeks with these people. There is no room for any arseholes here. And if there are, they can just be sent to Wallonia. Yeah, and they can just say, oh, sorry, your casting application was invalid. Sorry about that. Oh, we didn't receive it. Oh, sorry, it got lost in the mail. Damn Belgian post. <laughs> You actually sent it to the Vidim producers. Ah, oh, hot for Dumur. <laughs> so then, after the challenge, everyone actually gets to meet each other for the first time, and Ruth admits she's clumsy. And I have to say this, after four, nearly five years of being conditioned for this, it's really weird to see them driving anything other than BMWs. They're driving Chevys. I just, I just know them as cars. <laughs> I wish it was a Volkswagen Beetle. We don't talk about Beetles. Or... Or uh, the Scooby-Doo Mystery Mobile. Do you not remember that the VW Beetle is my berserk button after I went to Texas earlier in the year and had to drive one for a week? They're awful cars. Oh, that's what you had to drive? Yeah, I had the most Texan car possible. It was a VW Beetle. Like from the 70s? No, it was reasonably modern. It was just that you've seen how tall me and my brother are, and we had to squeeze ourselves and two pieces of luggage into this fecking small car. <laughs> We asked for a Ford Focus, and we got a VW Beetle. You know what they should have done when Ruth was making herself cry in the first challenge? Uh, they really should have played Don't Cry For Me Argentina from uh, Vita Perón. No, if this were a later season, they would have done that, but they actually use it in a later episode in this season, so that's probably why they didn't. Although if they did use it, it would end up being an instrumental version and be like a really badass rendition of it. Probably a YouTube musician of some description that just fully orchestrates it. Was Papa Bear on vocals? Oh, definitely. Papa Bear would have uh, would have done his karaoke. <laughs> oh, I would actually quite like to hear Papa Bear do Don't Cry For Me Argentina. If someone can make that happen, that would be wonderful. <laughs> oh, and that could be the theme so intro song for this podcast. <laughs> oh, definitely. If we can somehow make that happen, that would be delightful. <laughs> And at dinner, Papa Bear hands out the Mole Diaries. He introduces the idea of the game. Every few days they will take a test, and whoever knows least goes home. And everyone finds it suspicious how far away the no group were. Hannah says Tibbo is terrible with remembering numbers. And Tibbo says he knows who it is already. And that is Ruth, because she was left alone with the flag. Just go, just go all on one person, all on Ruth. Yeah, definitely put all 20 questions on the most suspicious person in the history of the Mole. Ruth. And they all wake up on day two to a chance to take as many notes as they want in their mole books. And you can tell that this is the first season in 16 years because Mark doesn't even have a pen with him. He just does it in his own blood. <laughs> like, I'd forgotten how much of a big storyline this is in the first two episodes of the big split in the group between people who make loads of notes and people who make no notes whatsoever. They put the no in notes. Yeah, as such a huge fan of the mole, I can't imagine why people have gone into this game going... I'm not going to take any notes, I'll be fine. Just wing it. It's only 100,000 euros on the line. <laughs> One thing I want to note is just how much, the, out of all the seasons in the reboot of Belgian Mole, this is the, the most uncomfortable or most confrontational it gets between all the players, where some of them just flat out aren't getting along or have a big, or it's a big enough, uh, big enough gap that None of them really ride the same cars together anymore. Yeah, I was saying this to you earlier, and it's more of an episode two thing than an episode one thing, so we'll get into this next week, but 
I'd forgotten how confrontational Kathy is in this season. She's extremely aggressive. One thing I want to note about Kath are two things, really. One, how confrontational she is, and and then number two, how close she is with Jills from the very first episode. Like they talk, they're at, they always show us scenes of the two of them together talking a lot. Like when Mark when Mark says that unfortunate thing about his 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 sleeping bag defense. Kathy was the one at the table there. And then the morning when they're just in each other's rooms, Kathy and Jills are frequently talking. They're usually in the same car together. And we're going to see it in the second episode that uh, they're even going to be in the same group for a task together as well. Yeah, I wonder whether they changed the casting process after this season, because compared to the other Belgian seasons, this cast is so much more confrontational. Comfort, yeah, confrontational just and personality clashes where they're just all not meshing together as well. Which makes it a unique season, which is what you want when you're planning to do one season every single year, where you would need to make it distinct for the viewer so it's a new a new story or a new experience each time. But here, it may have crossed that line of maybe that's why the first rule that Jill says after after this season where he's, where he's saying, hey, my first criteria is I want it to be a group of people I want to spend time with. And maybe the second criteria is, hey, I want it to be a group of people who want to spend time with each other. Yeah, it's quite stark comparing this cast to casts from other seasons, because take Manuela, for example. Her archetype of the older lady is obviously one of my favourites, but she's far more confrontational than, say, a Katrina or an Else. You never see those characters get really aggressive, even though they serve the same archetype. Other than Ingrid with her pack of crackers. <laughs> I'd forgotten about Ingrid and her breaking the tree at the finale. <laughs> And you thought, and you thought Ruth was clumsy. Yeah, Katrine is more of the um, the Manuela archetype. I think uh, Ingrid is more of a Ruth, of a clumsy middle aged woman. So after breakfast, they all head off in the cars to another challenge. And on the way, Bruno teaches his car Spanish, like the word lobo meaning donkey. And even my rudimentary Spanish knows that that is utter horseshit, because it is wolf, you idiot. <laughs> And along the way, they are intercepted by a gaucho who leads them back to their ranch where Papa Bear awaits. And then two gauchos teach them how to lasso for an hour, which some people have much uh, more ease with than others. And after the hour is up, uh, Papa Bear asks for two people with a great eye for detail, and they choose Kathy and Thibaut. The other eight get one hour to catch as many llamas as they can who are waiting in a pen. Each of them has a value of between 100 euros and 2,000 hanging around their necks in a tub. Kathy and Thibault have pictures of the llamas and have to describe the high-value ones, whilst also describing who to avoid, as two of the llamas have bankrupt tokens hanging around their necks. And Thibault tries to describe a llama called Mariano, but he says it's difficult because of how white he is. And it's Manuela who is the first to enter the enclosure, and everyone must try at least once. And just like in life, they try and avoid all the white ones. And Manuela tries to lasso, but ends up face-planting, and then eventually lassoes a white one. And then Mark is second up. He is a little bit more successful. Ruth, however, is not. And then Isabel is next, and we get a hot for dumber of her. And then Jill is next, and he lassoes one, and gets some spit from his captive too. That's how coronavirus spreads. It is. It was llamas all along. Everyone was looking for pangolins and bats and stuff, but actually, they needed to look in northern Argentina for the llamas. So with half an hour to go, Kathy wants him to go after Gloria, one of the white ones. Bruno isn't so keen and calls her sweetie on the walkie-talkie, but instead gets the response off Thibaut. And it is Hannah who ends up supporting the plan. And then Bruno risks looking for Gloria. He manages to catch one that's already been caught, and then catches another one. And then Stein shows off by catching two in one throw. And Hannah is last up. She tries a softer tactic, but catches one eventually without using said softer tactic. And with one second left, she catches the second one, bringing their total llama count to eight. One thing I want I want the listeners to focus on as they're watching these episodes is pay attention to Stein during the season, because it's a great example on how to how to ensure no one finds you suspicious. Yeah, I probably should have said this at the start of the episode, but watching this season the first time, Stein was my favourite. I also remember quite clearly who my suspect was going into the finale and for most of the season. And I was wrong, so we'll get there towards the end of the season, but I'll show you how I was wrong. 
So then Papa Bear returns and opens all of their containers. Hannah's first one earns 100 euros. Jill's first one is worth 250 and Bruno's earns 200. Hannah's second one earns 200. Jill's second one is 250. Stein's brown llama is worth 200. His white one is also 200. And Manuela has the last one. Hers was the very first capture and it's worth 100 euros, bringing their total to 1500 euros of possible 5,000. I'm surprised they couldn't get the bankrupt that they didn't catch one of the bankrupt llamas. Yeah, because there was about 15 llamas, I think. Yes. I roughly worked out that the maximum for this challenge was about 5,000 if they caught all the right llamas. But if there's 15 llamas and they caught 8 of them, there was only 13 good ones. That's pretty low odds that they've managed to beat here. And Papa Bear also says that in addition to winning the first money of the game, they will be staying at the ranch tonight, but he has one little request for them to do which is to rank their fellow contestants from most to least suspicious, and that will play into tomorrow's challenge. If you were the, if you were the mole, do you think you could gear towards the bankrupt llama being chosen? Would you want to be in the group of two or in the big lasso group? I think, yet again, the mole had a bit of a difficult decision here, because if you're in the group of eight, which is the best place to hide, they would have known that not only would everyone's containers be opened, but they would be identified as to who caught that llama. So it's a bit of a risk for them to be in the group of eight, catch a bankrupt llama, and then have it identified that they did it, putting them right at the top of the suspicions list, right before the next challenge, where they know everyone's going to get ranked. I wish they would have stuck with the initial instructions or description where, uh, was it Bruno? Where Bruno says, oh yeah, go for the llama that's named Gloria. He was telling people the, 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 the names of the llamas, thinking they had name tags. But yeah, it's a matter of, hey, why, why didn't you guys catch Gloria? I told you, catch the one named Gloria. How'd you, how'd you not figure that out? We would have had so much more money. <laughs> no, it was Thibaut, I think, because it was Thibaut and um, Thibaut and Kathy who were the great eye for detail people. Oh, it was Thibaut. Oh, okay. So yeah, Thibaut, pardon me. It's tough. That's the one thing I remember watching the Argentina season originally is that in South Africa, Vietnam, Mexico, and Greece, all the contestants are really distinct to me. But for some reason in this season, Mark, Bruno, and Thibaut all have very similar personalities in terms of how they talk and how they get on with each other. I just don't find too much of a distinction between those three guys. And then we get a wonderful two-episode storyline coming up here with the ranch only having two rooms, so it's one for men, one for women. And in the men's room, two of them must sleep in the same bed and they decide to draw matches to decide who has to sleep in the same bed. And wonderfully for us, in the same way that Survivor Africa had Brandon and Frank having to spend a reward together, this show has our dream pairing of Jill and Mark. Except there was the clause that if you didn't like your match, you're allowed to back out and sleep on the floor. Yeah, good point. And Mark says that he's never slept in a bed with anyone other than his wife, and he kind of wants to sleep in his sleeping bag, but doesn't want to offend Jill because he's gay. Spoiler alert, uh, Jill's feelings are not hurt. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Jill just finds this hilarious, as you probably should. Because as you said earlier, it's probably not that Mark's homophobic, it's more that he's probably never met a homosexual before. And therein lies the humour. Or, or that's, been, that's uh, out of the closet. Yeah, he's probably just never met anyone like Jill before and doesn't know how to handle him. Which is delightful. And it could have had a redemption arc for him. But he just keeps talking. What do I? What do I talk about with him, man? I don't. I don't know how to deal with him. Do I bring up RuPaul's Drag Race? Um, do I compliment his looks? Do I talk about my uh, female uh, members of my family? What do I do? <laughs> yeah, watching Mark in this scene just reminds me of the song from the film Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping which is called Equal Rights, where it's just like, sports, not gay. Riding bikes, not gay. <laughs> I just want to see like the inside of Mark's brain trying to figure out this interaction and just <laughs> this being the most stressful part of his whole mole experience is figuring out how he talks to Jills. Maybe that explains why Mark never takes any notes about who the mole actually is, because he's just writing notes about, what can I actually talk about with Jill? <laughs> <laughs> like those later challenge, like the challenges they do at the end of a lot of seasons where you play where the eliminate contestants journals. 
Rex is just all about Jill's. I don't know how Jill's took the me telling him that I was going to use my sleeping bag tonight. I hope it's not because it's for that reason. I would have I, w- I would have used my sleeping bag if it was any other dude. Yeah, Mark is very much an early 2000s reality TV contestant, sort of transported into a 2016 reality show. And I think it all comes from a kind of well-meaning place, but you just watch it as an independent observer in 2020, just going, oh, those are unfortunate things that you're saying. This is not aged well for 2020. <laughs> or just or just his other notes like, hmm, Joe's is a really nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so cultured now. <laughs> I have actually met one of them. They're homosexuals. <laughs> and they're good people. <laughs> Out of all all the contestants on this season, 100,000 euros or no 100,000 euros, Mark is getting the most positive impact out of this experience. <laughs> This has become so much bigger than a game to him. Regardless of whether he won any money whatsoever, he's now answered one of the questions in his mind, what are homosexuals like? He can't wait to tell his buddies at the next poker game. Or write to his mom. So everyone wakes up early on day three, and they find a USB in the cars with their favourite songs on it for the long drive to the Cabra Corral Reservoir south of Celta. Both cars encounter beggars, and Jill outright refuses to help them, and he gets really angry about it, but ends up paying them anyway, and then gets called soft by the other car. Well, again? Was it Mark? I think it was. I think Mark was driving the car behind him um, and came on the walkie-talkie going, you just gave him money, you're so soft. <laughs> I knew I was right when I thought you were a softy. <laughs> so when they get to the reservoir, they are blindfolded and hooked up to a harness, and this brings us back to the opening shot of the uh, season. Papa Bear outright taunts them by sailing down the reservoir in a yacht, and in this challenge they are all hanging at different heights of the bridge, the most suspected has the longest rope, the least has the shortest. All they've got to do to earn 5,000 euros for the pot is to all drop. And Thibaut doesn't have a height, as he was feeling sick and fainted, so isn't taking part. Oh, I'm afraid of heights. Oh no! I'm, I'm, I'm getting lightheaded, guys. I'm fainting. Cut me down. I don't know if I can do this. I swear I fainted. I'm just going to go silent for a really long period of time and hope I can join Joe's on the yacht so I get the free massage from the Argentine masseuses. How would you play this ranking task as a mole, thinking about it? Because I don't think you'd have any input from the producers as to who voted which person. Put yourself as the most suspicious just for laughs? <laughs> yeah, because thinking about it, just as a person, you don't want to have the um, the shortest rope here because Kathy has the longest rope at seven and a half meters. Manuela has the longest at twelve meters, and that's how far you got to drop. Well, just think of the intensity that Kathy had even during the during the llama challenge, where she was the one pushing. Like we got to go for the llamas that look similar to the bankrupt ones, just because it's it's more money. Like she's just been really really intense and putting everyone in high-risk situations. So I'm guessing that's what drew a lot of suspicion to herself early on from the first episode, which, if she's not the mole, is a great strategy. Yeah, and you have to think that Kathy has a maid who she needs to keep paying and keeping in the lifestyle that she's accustomed to. So she needs a lot of money in that part. So yeah, Kathy is the most suspected, so her rope is only 7.5 metres, and she's followed by Bruno, Thibaut, Ruth, Isabel, Stein, Jill, Mark, Hannah, and Manuela, who is at 12 metres, and each of them are half a metre apart on their ropes. And Hannah checks whether Stein will actually do the jump, and asks if he's scared, and he says, of this, yes. <laughs> what What else was he was he being asked if he's scared about? I like how he's like, you mean... Of this task where we're currently suspended in midair, yes, I am scared of this. Of sock puppets when I go to sleep at night? No. Like, what other piece of conversation, what other topic could be could be on, on their mind right now? <laughs> of being blindfolded in a foreign country? Surprisingly, yes, I'm scared of that. <laughs> Of the what's going to happen to uh, an endangered species in the Great Barrier Reef, yes, I'm also scared of that too. Wait, 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 wait. You were talking about being suspended above water while blindfolded? Where did that come from? (laughs) So Manuela is the first to drop, 
once she actually manages to find where her rope is, and then it's Hannah who drops second. And I'd completely forgotten that this happens, but when she does drop, Iza for some reason shouts, Yeah, bitch, hold my poodle! What? I've never heard that expression. I'm googling that right now. Yeah, maybe make sure safe search is on. Well, if I type in meaning of it, then it comes off as educational. Hold my poodle meaning. Oh, it's a meme. Hold my poodle meaning in Urdu, the language that they use in rural Pakistan. (laughs) Okay, so hold my poodle. Yo, what's up? You got a problem. Oh, wow. I was not going to guess this. It's from the Waynes Brothers classic, White Chicks, which is a movie from like 2001, 2002, I think. Like, it's, I, I think my brother had a DVD of that movie. It's a, it's a, it's not recent. And it wouldn't have even been recent in the Argentina season. Maybe they'd already bonded over their love of white chicks. <laughs> what a, I was, the first American movie reference in the Mole Belgi is white chicks. Thank you, Isabel, for that complete unexpected moment of randomness, which I'm sure nine other Belgians being suspended while blindfolded would have instantly understood that reference too. Do you think everyone's going to hear that and be like, man, yeah, <laughs> hold my poodle, hold my poodle, man. I really got to rewatch White Chicks. Thanks, Isabel. <laughs> we all know exactly what that's a reference to. Yeah, <laughs> like, man, like, 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 uh, you have, say, I don't know, uh, Luke, I'm your father, or how do you like them apples? No, 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 no. We don't go with any of that. We go with hold my poodle. <laughs> oh, hot for Dama. So, Ruth is the next person to drop, and at this point, Kathy says that she's not jumping before Stein. Bruno's fourth, followed by Isabel. Bruno says Stein is still a bit suspicious, as he's quite quiet in the group. Gilles is an extra drop, followed by Mark, leaving just Kathy and Stein. Kathy is always like this every damn challenge. Is there no off button with her? Yeah, I'd forgotten how antagonistic Kathy can be at times during this season. Antagonistic and intense. She just does not stop. No, like everyone says... By the end, either end of the first episode or the very start of the second one, they all say, wow, Kathy is the most intense. You have, it's actually really funny, you have Kathy on one end in terms of intensity and just really focused all the time and trying to figure this game out. And then on the other end, the most relaxed contestant overall is probably Hannah. Yeah, I'd forgotten until I rewatched this season that Kathy just goes from zero to a hundred straight away. As soon as the challenge is happening. She's just relentless, and I don't think they've ever cast anyone like her since. It's so fun to see, actually. I could remember a little bit of what she'd done during the season, but I had completely forgotten about the pure intensity, especially in the first couple of episodes, where she is so switched on. But she just has such a weird arc during this season that I'd completely forgotten quite a lot of it. If she's not the mole, that's probably her true personality, and she's just probably a... A very, very competitive person. Yeah. And I also love the fact that Isabel's first thought as to why Thibaut isn't hanging is potentially because he cheated. (laughs) He faked fainting. Yeah. He might have just cheated and Jill's pulled him from the game three days in. What would have been great with Thibaut when he faints? (laughs) He's like, I'm not feeling so well up here, guys. And then he faints while suspended in midair. Is that the producers are thinking, oh... I guess he feels fine now because he's not saying anything. I guess we'll just leave him up there. Tebow, why aren't you dropping? Why aren't you dropping, man? Man, he's playing a t- he's playing a tough, ballsy game up there. He's really pissing off Kathy by not dropping. Well, you have ten minutes, guys. Tebow's the only one up there. Time's up. You don't win the five thousand euros. I'm sorry. Yeah, you've got to imagine that there were heart rate monitors or something strapped to them, and as soon as Thibaut started flatlining, they uh, they said, right, we've just got to get him down now. There's no choice. Just or dropped. <laughs> His vitals dropped. His vitals dropped faster, like they'd been uncorked from the rope. 
So Cathy eventually relents and is the 9 to drop, leaving just Stein hanging there at 10 metres. He drops, they earn 5,000 euros, and that gives them a first week total of 6,500 of a possible 20,000 for the pot. And Papa Bear lets them have beer on the yacht to celebrate their success. And at lunch they get to salute to a successful morning, but then Papa Bear enters and breaks their hearts by announcing that someone will be leaving in the first execution that evening. And in another bit I'd forgotten, Ruth is worried that they will do the elimination before they eat. And Papa Bear has to reply that they're not that cruel. No, <laughs> just have a bunch of waiters and waitresses and the, the restaurant staff just quickly pull the plates out away from them. The plates get replaced by laptops for the quiz. <laughs> Surprise! So it is now time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows least goes home. Ish. Except for the mole, who can never go home. So Isabel suspects Kathy, Thibault and Ruth. Thibault says he didn't sleep the night before because he thinks he's cracked it already. Mark suspects Thibaut, Ruth, Bruno, Jill, and Kathy doing that Nathan from Vidum 20 thing of splitting over half of the people left in the game. Stein suspects Bruno but hopes that he's wrong because they get on really well. Bruno says he wants to pick randomly but is going for Ruth. Ruth is scared of how sure she is. Hannah suspects Manuela as she got a bad vibe from her straight away. Manuela suspects Jill as he's a storyteller. And Jill suspects Isabel, Ruth, and Kathy. Ruth acts so innocent but everything goes wrong around her. And at the elimination, Papa Bear says that they had three fantastic days, but someone has to go home. And Bruno, Isabel, Stein, Manuela and Hannah all get green screens, before it is Ruth who is the first to be eliminated. I should note, this execution is very unusual because there's no suspense for the screen. It's just type the name, boom, screen comes up. No countdown at all. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that they use this season as a bit of a testing ground, because firstly you have Papa Bear who looks really young, but then you have the casting where they kind of tweak it after this season, we suspect. But with the executions, this one is just boom, 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 really silent. Straight away they find out if they're eliminated or not. Whereas in later seasons, and even later in this season, they really ramp up the tension using the music, and there is no such thing as silence in an execution anymore. So it's really weird to come back to this first one where it is deathly silent. Yeah. And one thing, one big difference I noticed about this first episode too is we check in with people's suspicions from the first couple minutes of the episode all the way through to the end of this this episode. You never get to frequently check in with everybody that often anymore. It's more just reserved for the quiz. No, and something else I notice is the fact that they don't tend to show too many green screens anymore. It tends to be quite a rapid thing, the executions. Whereas in this one we saw, I think it was five before Ruth got the red one. Yeah. I guess when you only have, if there's so much good material that you want to show for the rest of the episode, just cutting out, cutting out like 30 seconds or so from the execution is probably the best way to go. And on her way out, Ruth says that she uh, gambled on one person, but she really enjoyed herself, and she's just happy to have got this far. First boot. She got away from Belgium, is what she's happy about. And something else I spotted in this premiere, which I'd completely forgotten about, but it's hilarious, was Mark's eulogy for Ruth. Did you notice it as well? No, I did not. What Mark says, and no word of a lie on this, is that it was a shock that she went first, and it was a bomb that went through the group. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there watching the premiere a couple of days ago, just going, they did just put that quote in this episode, didn't they? And it's another thing where we can say the Papa Ver sense of humour is so already on point, even by the premiere of this reboot season. It's glorious. I like how she still gets her own montage. I'll ne- they'll never they'll never be not funny for me is that the person who goes on by the second or third day there's still enough of a, an emotional montage for them yeah because they're still doing that now aren't they yep even contestants she'll got one in uh, in greece so papa bear gilda costa takes her things to the car but as she sits down and buckles in the door locks she's alone in a foreign land in a locked car and then papa bear comes on the screen in the car the first elimination is a lottery and she has the chance to get back in the game. And that is how the episode ends. I must tell you, as somebody who's been to Argentina, if there's one country, well, other than maybe Brazil, and all of South America, where you don't want to be in a car and have it locked from the inside, I think chances, if you're if that happens to you in Argentina, good chance that's the last thing that's ever going to happen to you. Yeah, if that happens to you in Argentina, a bomb is about to go off. 
and it won't be paint. Instead, you'll find Ruth's limbs scattered about the car. I know it's become a bit of a meme whenever we talk about the Belgian seasons, but the twist at the end of the first episode is always wonderful to see what they've come up with. But this one in particular is so good. It's such a good twist. And what I want to point out too, in contrast to say, say the American version of Survivor, when they bring people back through either Edge of Extinction or Redemption Island, it's mandatory. There's no way that they that's one or two players don't get to come back into the game. It's it's a must through the design of the rules of the game for those specific themes. But here, what I really like with with the mole is that when they have this as like the twist at the end of the first episode, and that it's just a matter of a person possibly being able to get back into the game. It's not guaranteed. And most often, and we've seen it, we've seen plenty of occasions between the Belgian version and Vidim where the person tries to get back into the game, but they don't succeed. And then with Vidim, it's, you know, they, well, of course, they do multiple non eliminations a season, but it's nice to know that it's not just producers forcing the twist in the game where a person's always going to be brought back into it. Yeah, and I love this opening twist, especially because they literally end it with, you have the possibility of getting back in the game. There is no indication of what the actual consequences are if she doesn't get back in the game until the start of the second episode, at which point she goes, you're going to set a bomb off on me. What the fuck, guys? If there was a yes card and no card for who wanted a bomb, paint bomb set off on them, that'd be better ways to divide up the teams rather than who wanted to be the mole and who want, who didn't want to be at the mole at the beginning. Yeah. So we will end the episode as we always do. Who do you suspect and who do you think is going home next week? <laughs> well. Nah, I'm just messing. We're not doing that this season. I guess we just ended here. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Have you got anything you want to say after uh, one episode of this glorious season rewatch? Yeah, as I said before, just pay attention to, well, of course, with Ruth, with her her strategy of going all in on one person at the beginning. That is never, no matter how confident you are, that is never the way to play the mole when there's still 10 people left in the game. And pay attention to the intensity of Kathy in each round. Pay attention to how this group interacts with each other in contrast to more recent seasons. And pay attention to uh, how much of a team player Stein is in challenges. So I want to talk about that, especially with the second episode. Yeah. This premiere sets up a lot of the running themes of the season, more so than a lot of other shows do, and it's to their credit that I completely did not get it when I watched the season originally, and now re-watching it, oh, I am getting those themes picked up on straight away. Yeah, 100%. So, thank you for listening to the first Mole Belgium Argentina recap. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for the Argentinian mole. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us at contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at LogsofaGracky, and I'm MJ Armstone. See you next week. Peace out, and just chill till the next of flavoring.